Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by a returning guest, Dr. Evian Leidig, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Tilburg, and is also the author of The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. Thanks for joining us, Evian. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the book? What was the impetus for writing it? Yeah, so when I started writing off this book, I guess what really motivated me was, I should note that I started writing this book at the heyday of the the so-called alt-right. And I was noticing how time and again, there's a lot of media, as well, I should say, academic stereotypes about, you know, what the far right looks like. And and I think when we imagine what the far right looks like, it's typically these angry young men, and particularly Western societies, angry young white men. And I knew that there was a lot of, let's say, prominent female figures within the alt-right at the time. So I'm thinking about people like Lauren Southern or, or Brittany Pettibone, now Zellner who were quite active and and quite visible within the movement. And so that piqued my curiosity in terms of wanting to write about them and what they saw their roles to be within the far right. And the arguments of the book, as I started to dive into it deeper, was that these women were playing quite a significant role in terms of normalizing and legitimizing all of far right ideas. And these women were quite invaluable in promoting these narratives. And so that led me to, I think, the, you know, why I wanted to write this book and, and the motivation behind it. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the process? How did you go about finding out what these women were up to? Well, I mean, some of them were already quite active YouTubers. And I had first read Rebecca Lewis's report about reactionary right YouTubers. And she had drawn out this, this map or this ecosystem so I used that as a as a way to start to jump off of, you know, who was who within this network. And I started to see these women, especially on collabs with their male contemporaries within the alt-right. So I used that as a basis. But then from there, I started to see, try to track their social media activity and see like who was becoming quite prominent on, on different far-right channels. So it evolved organically from there. But as you know, as you know about the far right, it is a quickly changing landscape. And there was sort of like new figures popping up on the scene that I started to write about. So I started off focusing on figures like Lauren Southern and Brittany Pettibone, also people like Lacey Lynn and Ayla Stewart. But then I started to write more about 
people like Eiffel Flodringbroek, who's a Dutch political activist, who's at the forefront of a lot of this Great Reset conspiracy theory stuff, as well as Thais Descouffon, who was a former spokesperson for the identitarian movement in France. So there's new figures that popped up on the scene over time. Also the, the so-called tradwives, who have become quite a trendy talking point. So people like Mrs. Midwest, for example. So yeah, I mean, I think I just, I really just dived into it in terms of there was a few people that I really focused on, but like as the landscape changed, as the movement changed over these last few years, I, I started to look into new figures who were popping up on the scene. Evelyn, when I think about the alt right and the, the male figures associated with the movement, I think of people like Richard Spencer and I guess Milton Selner and so on. And in the media reportage and perhaps in some academic treatments, there was a kind of preoccupation with their appearance, the fact that they appeared to be a clean cut well-spoken and so on. What were the distinctive features or what are the distinctive features of the, the women on the far right? And how do they relate to these, I guess, ascetic dimensions of the, the men on the far right? So absolutely the women that I study who I describe as influencers, they have very similar appearances in terms of seemingly to be educated and well-spoken and articulate, attractive in the normative sense, you could say. You know, some of them are married to men within this movement, and those men can be quite visible figures like Martin Zellner or less visible ones who they may not actually mention by name, but we know based upon the content that they've created that they'll reveal that they've met their husbands through this movement. And and I think you're quite right in terms of the general image that they're trying to promote, which is that is of appealing to, to broad audiences and, and being quite articulate but I think what makes these women stand out from their male counterparts, and this is an argument in the book, is that yes, they do make videos reacting to political commentary or having hot takes on current events. But they also try to position themselves in a more holistic way in terms of their personal brands. So I focus a lot on Instagram as a platform. And what I show on Instagram is how they are trying to use the features of the platform, like Instagram stories, to showcase really the banal aspects of their everyday lives. So they share things like cooking recipes or, or baby foods that they're making for their families. And these more banal um, aspects of, of far-right propaganda, essentially, is what it is is a way of making them seem to be quite relatable and accessible to their audiences. And so the fact that they're going out of their way beyond the political commentary towards trying to showcase their, their everyday lives and trying to model that as an aspirational image for their audiences is, I think, something that makes them quite distinct from their male counterparts. Do, do you think in that case that it's a, a kind of a, a lifestyle or a culture that's being sold on the part of these women? Oh, 100%. I mean, these women are very much trying to model this lifestyle in terms of merging their political ideology with their personal lifestyle into something that is aspirational. But I do want to caution audiences in the sense that this is also a performance and it is a, a cultivation of a perception that they are modeling these lifestyles. I mean, Sure, you can see what they post on Instagram stories, but that doesn't necessarily mean that is the reality of their lived experience. So they're definitely quite attuned to how they are modeling this in a performative way for their followers. Could you speak a little bit about the, the role of micro-celebrity in, in these movements? 
Yeah, thanks for that question. And I guess we're going to dig into the theory now of, of this section of the podcast. So I use some terms from media studies, in particular, those who have researched influencer culture. And by that, I mean, yes, we can think about influencers on social media, but there are those who have actually been studying it as a type of culture in terms of that relationship between the viewer and the influencer. Now, within the literature, there is this concept of micro-celebrity, which is somebody who is essentially a celebrity for a rather niche audience. So in this case, it would be the far right or the alt-right. And micro-celebrities, they tend to use very specific strategies in order to make them seem relatable, accessible, and authentic to their followers. So on the one hand, there is a glamorizing effect, like they are a celebrity, but on the other hand, they try to make themselves seem quite relatable to their audiences. So that might be revealing more intimate aspects of their daily lives. So like, as I mentioned earlier, maybe it's just an Instagram story about preparing dinner for the family, something like that. And so what these far-right women influencers do, as I show in the book, is that they're really attuned to using these types of micro-celebrity strategies and as a as really as tactics of radicalization, because they are, in essence, normalizing or legitimizing what is what seems to be far-right ideas and ideology into easily digestible formats for their audiences. And they usually do so through this quite subtle language or through quite coded language as a way of, you know, perhaps not being so as explicit or, or confrontational as their male counterparts, but as a more subtle way of showcasing far-right propaganda. And I argue that this is actually a lot more insidious and dangerous in the long run. One of the common contradictions that you find looking at some of these people is the more successful you are as a you know a far-right female influencer, your audience is increasingly going to consist of men who actively resent you and women who maybe you're not that far off that either. How do these people navigate these environments where you know, a large part of their audience are misogynists? Yeah, 100%. That, that is such an irony because they try to promote these narratives around traditional families and traditional gender norms, and yet they face really this onslaught of, of misogyny, which is, again, it's ironic because it's female support and misogyny, and yet there's a lot of misogynists who attack them. And I write about the, the concept of the trad thought in the book, in particular how it was levied against figures like Lauren Southern, who they claimed to speak about all these traditional values and not actually model that in their, in their daily lives. And that was before she got married, etc., and, you know, the way that these women try to defend themselves against these male critics, despite having some allies in, in the manosphere, you could say, is that they try to justify their platform by saying, well, we need to have women within this movement speaking out because who else is going to do so? And that's the justification that they use for their platforms. But again, I mean, they just they do love the celebrity. They love the attention. And despite the fact that they will get critics, you know, it is something to bear in mind in terms of the fact that they are opportunists, they are grifters, and they do love the celebrity that they receive more broadly on these platforms. So I think they tend to dismiss a lot of these misogynists who make these, you know, sexist and, and patriarchal comments to them. And, and sometimes they'll try to belittle these misogynists as well. So I remember one time watching this live stream 
uh, on YouTube. And there were some pretty extreme misogynist comments in the chat uh, as the live stream was going on. And they would say like, you know, if, if you're making these comments, we're just going to kick you off the chat. Or they would try to make these like demasculating comments towards these viewers on, in the chat. So yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is an inevitable aspect, I think, in terms of unpacking, you know, how, how messy and, and how deeply ingrained misogyny can be within the far right, even for these women who, who do receive so much attention and celebrity for their platforms. Well, I mean, in terms of the audience and its response, is, is the product differentiated? Is, are these women attempting to appeal to men and women or to women exclusively? What's, what's their approach in your understanding? Yeah, thanks so much for that question, because when I started writing this book, I had assumed that these far-right women influencers would be primarily recruiting women into the movement. And very interestingly, I had found that at least on YouTube, um, it seemed like they were actually recruiting and or radicalizing their male viewers. And I think one influencer had mentioned that she looked at her YouTube analytics the other day, and 85% of her viewers were male, which was quite an astonishing number. And also a bit ironic, because in terms of her sponsors, I remember at one point, she was also sponsored by this organic cotton tampon company, which clearly shows that these these sponsors really have no idea who they're actually sponsoring sometimes. And this led me to understand and unpack the ways that they were using different types of gender narratives towards radicalization and recruitment. So these women are very good at also creating content designed specifically for their male viewers. And they'll talk about tropes concerning masculinity and this notion that mainstream society is controlled by feminists and prevents men from exercising their, quote, natural biological traits of masculinity, like aggression, leadership, and dominance. And so they say to young men, if you join the far right, you'll be able to exercise these traits and and ideally find a traditional submissive wife within the movement and that you'll be much happier within the far right's ranks. But then on the other hand, I've noticed that when it comes to Instagram as a platform, these women tend to create content and it, and it seems based on the, the followers and commentators that they have more female followers on Instagram. And this might be because the type of content that they're posting on Instagram isn't necessarily say things like political commentary, which could be a recommendation from the male YouTubers that lead followers to their videos. But it's things like images about homemaking and, and motherhood and child rearing. It's topics like breastfeeding and trying to conceive and changing diapers. So indeed, I think these women are really good at leveraging the different features of different platforms in order to target different audiences. And when it comes to women specifically, these influencers says that they tend to want to recruit two different types of women. So the first are tradcaths or traditional Catholics who were probably raised within a religious conservative upbringing and so already are a bit more receptive to the far right's messaging around traditional gender norms. And then the second type of woman that these influencers describe as wanting to target are, quote, recovering feminists like themselves. So actually, indeed, some of these influencers did describe growing up, at least in their young adulthood, being quite liberally minded, more progressively minded, self-describing as feminists, but 
because of having been red-pilled, they see that feminism has supposedly ruined gender relations in mainstream society. And so they describe themselves as recovering feminists. And oftentimes they try to create content to tap into those, quote, recovering feminists who are isolated and lonely and looking for a community that the far right's messaging is is trying to offer. In terms of what's termed radicalization, I mean, I guess initially there may be some exposure to this material and, you know, there's often references to uh, consumers falling down rabbit holes and consuming more and more of this material. Beyond that, and, and perhaps consuming, I guess, whatever products are on offer, do you have a sense that the audience that's consuming this thing is progressing beyond the engagement with the individual into organized action of some sort into otherwise ordinary or, or more common forms of political engagement? Is what's being created a, or intended to be created a, a generation of um, political activists that are more politically engaged? Yeah, this is a great question. And I I think part of the difficulty in answering this is that I didn't necessarily follow those who were audiences of these women. I was focused a lot more on the types of messaging and propaganda that these influencers promote. And part of that was like an ethical issue as well. I couldn't get uh, university clearance to do that, although I would have loved to spend more time with with those who were actively consuming uh, this content. I think on the one hand, indeed, we might see certain offshoots of political activism as a result of viewing this content and perhaps becoming increasingly radicalized by it. I think it's a bit difficult to be able to filter out the direct causal effect of that. But I think what particularly is apparent within this influencer space is I'm seeing a lot more consumers focus on the cultural lifestyle aspects than necessarily the type of political mobilization that that we might have seen, say, during the alt-right years. And, you know, part of that is because the far-right landscape has shifted so much. We've had the COVID pandemic, and that certainly ignited a lot of people to go out onto on-the-ground protests and engage in, in demos and things like that. But I'm definitely starting to see the shift a lot more towards this modeling of, of lifestyle. And, and I think that, you know, that is the next transition when it comes to the far right. I mean, I've also been, for instance, looking at masculinist influencers, people like Andrew Tate, for example, and and seeing how there has been this channeling of notions of ideology that becomes inculcated into one's personal lifestyle choices. And and I think that is the next foray for, for the far right. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, is there anything like in in particular that you're thinking about with this type of question? Like, have you seen activism change or or mutate, you think, since the dissolution of the alt-right into the contemporary far-right today? I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is in relation to a figure like Lauren Southern in particular, she was associated with groups like Generation Identity and so on. And there was a beyond, I guess, the lifestyle that was being presented by her on her various platforms. It seemed to be the case that, that part of the I guess her mission was to encourage those forms of engagement to, in a sense, well, glamorize them. Um, I'm wondering if you have any sense that the audience is being invited along this journey. Is that is that the kind of purpose beyond consuming uh, whatever's being offered? Yeah, I think when it comes to questions of of goals and aims, it's 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 not always so clear. I mean, on the one hand, you know, 
the type of activism that people like Lauren Southern modeled was that of this confrontational, in your face, quite aggressive. But, you know, I think she's tampered down a bit. I mean, she's still as politically extreme as before, but she has tampered down her her rhetoric and in her discourse. And on the one hand, like when we look at the far right today, it's 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 very disorganized, it's very fragmented, and, and I will note that it always has been, right? But I think what's really changed over the last couple of years is that there really is no central mobilizing figure. I mean, let's I mean, you know, for argument's sake, a figure like Trump was quite an effective rallying point for for several of these actors, but now he's been replaced by a number of, say, different politicians and, and political figures, but there's not really as much of a central messaging anymore. I think one thing that has changed is, in particular, a lot of this transphobic discourse that has really become quite a central rallying point for the far right across different regions. And we're starting to see how that agenda is being implemented through education and through schooling up to, you know, legislative uh, chambers. And so I th- just think that simply the the forms of activism have shifted, where you don't have so much of these demos and rallies, but you have a lot more like, how do we change the system? How do we start to get, you know, politicians elected that will promote the agenda? And I think this just goes hand in hand with the increasing mainstreaming of the far right, which really got jump started with Trump being in office, and they started to see, you know, what worked and what didn't work and how they could be most effective in terms of that broader metapolitical sense. Uh, Even perhaps just an aside, you mentioned earlier the ethics process that you had to go through for this book, which has has started as an academic project. I was curious that, you know, you are looking at public content. Does the university ethics departments maybe need to catch up a little bit with uh, the world of social media? Oh, absolutely. They are they are 20 years behind. No, I mean, this and, and perhaps this is because I was getting approval in Norway. And this is, I believe it was before the passage of GDPR. So Norway was still adhering to its own domestic ethics guidelines, which are very, very strict, definitely more than other EU countries. And yeah, indeed, even even though it was publicly available social media content, and arguably these are public figures, they I still very much had to justify why I wasn't seeking informed consent from these women, which quite obviously would pose a risk to myself, would block any type of access that I would be able to obtain from them. But speaking of ethics, I mean, it's not just university ethics. So I haven't talked about this too much, but I actually had a lot of difficulty actually getting this book published. So it had previously been at three publishers, had gone through the review process, the reviewers really liked it at each publisher. But then what ended up happening was that each publisher was afraid to publish the book because they were worried about being sued from the woman that I describe in depth throughout the book. And this was so frustrating to me because I was using, as you mentioned, publicly available social media data. These were public figures. And even just the process of going through a lawsuit, even though it was quite likely that these publishing companies would win the lawsuit, was enough to create panic and, and fear amongst these publishers. And so they were they were worried about going through with the project. And it just really infuriated me as somebody who sees, you know, these far right figures claim that they're being canceled, that they're being censored. And I was having so much difficulty just publishing material that they themselves had revealed uh, on these public platforms. So I'm really glad that I went ultimately with 
Columbia University Press because, you know, my editor just said this is the First Amendment and these are public figures. So, of, of course, you, you can publish. But it was just quite a frustrating process. And I think for about 18 months, I was searching for a new publisher for this book. Well, I'm certainly glad it's out there. Have you just to, I guess, summarize, what do you think are the most common misconceptions uh, of women on the far right? And secondly, they all seem to be quite young. Um, what future do they have and what place, I guess, are older women potentially accorded in this world and within the far right more generally? Yeah, so I'll take these one at a time. So the first question is about misconceptions about these women. And indeed, I think, you know, for those folks who may not be following politics so closely, or even the far right seem that closely, there is this general sense of confusion as to why, you know, there would be such prominent women in the far right. They say, you know, why would women support a cause that works against their interests? And indeed, that is absolutely valid. But I think in doing so, we tend to disregard that, yes, women have been involved in left-wing progressive activism for decades, and hence that's why we have things like women's rights movements and feminist movements, etc. But women have also been extremely active in conservative and far-right political activism for decades as well. So when we need to also make that part of the story and show how women have also been at the forefront of a lot of reactionary and, and conservative and, and indeed quite hateful movements, and so that is part of the story that I wanted to tell here. And that goes back to the first question about debunking stereotypes about what the far right looks like. Because even today, I mean, when I do see news coverage about, say, a far right terrorist attack, it's usually, you know, this neo-Nazi and his girlfriend, which is pretty infuriating because she is usually just as complicit and as committed as he is within the movement. And a second part of that that I wanted to debunk in terms of misconceptions is also the very significant and potentially dangerous role that these women in the far right can play in terms of we might consider what they do to not be, quote, as extreme or as hateful because they tend to, f to frame their propaganda through things like self-care or just you know, raising a family or, or trying to achieve your, quote, best self in, this, in these motivational terms. But actually, that is masking an extremely hateful ideology. And so what I wanted to show with this book is the, the ways in which these women are able to surpass a lot of the, say, much more extreme rhetoric of their male counterparts. And, and so I, I very much like to focus on this notion of gender blind spots when it comes to identifying what is problematic and hateful content that is being produced by far-right actors. I mean, just for example, you take a figure like Martin Zellner, who's been banned from almost every platform imaginable, I guess he did buy his, his ex account, his Twitter account. So besides that, he's been banned from every platform. And yet, Brittany Zellner has time and again said, oh, I'm going to be banned any day now. And she has not suffered any repercussions for the type of content that she produces because she says that type of rhetoric in a more soft or more subtle framing. And so she's allowed to remain on those platforms. And so this is definitely um, an issue when it comes to gender blind spots in this space. I think for the women that I focused on, these influencers who are primarily millennial and Gen Z women, they very much play upon their their looks and their youth as as forms of opportunity for attention online. And, you know, for some of these 
older women, a few who I've who I focused upon in the book, but not that much, they they generally tend to drift off and, and disappear from the scene. I mean, they still are. That's not to say that they don't have the same political beliefs after they disappear from the scene. You could say, but they are. I think they realize that there's just not a a demand for their content in the same way. So what I've noticed with at least the younger influencers that I've studied, of course, over the last few years, they've gone through different life stages. They've they are trying to find ways to still remain relevant to their audiences, and I've noticed this because you know one has drifted towards. Things like midwifery and becoming a doula. She also kind of tapped into some of the QAnon stuff for a while. Definitely a lot of content about anti-vax and, and anti-masking. But I've noticed that as she, when she first became pregnant, and as has she's had a few more children since then, she has tried to find ways to shift the tone and the content of her messaging a little bit here and there, I think, to figure out, you know, what's most relevant? How can I gain a new audience? Because let's face it, a lot of viewers, they they get bored and, and they want to move on to the next celebrity within this space. And so they're trying to search for, you know, who is who's somebody who is talking about content that seems new and fresh. And, and these influencers understand that. And so they're trying to find ways to shift their content in order to maintain the relevancy and perhaps reach a potential new audience within this increasingly vast landscape. Well, Evian, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to read more of your work, you are at evianleidig.com and the book, The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization is out now. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a great conversation, guys. Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. Uh, See you later. See you then. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.